Well, I want to give you just kind of a, a little bit of a heads up of where we're going to go over the next couple weeks. Uh, Pastor Joe, next week, will wrap up our series that we've been in, in Genesis. This is, we're in week nine, we're in 10 weeks all together, and, and uh, he's going to finish that series for us next week. And then the two weeks following that, we're going to do a series, a mini series, two weeks, called Road to Resurrection. And that's going to, um, John Dixon, who's kind of his specialty is in the area of apologetics is is going to kind of guide us through some of the conversation around the evidence of the resurrection the historicity of scripture and why we can validate because as we know when we celebrate easter like that is the center the core of our faith and so i want to just encourage you you may have people in your lives co-workers or neighbors or friends who, who may wrestle with some of those questions of course we do too as well but this would be a great opportunity to invite them to come hear somebody who is able to thoughtfully and uh, well-researched present that material. And so uh, I'm excited about that, and, and, and I think you will find it to be meaningful as well. Uh, when we began this series nine weeks ago, entitled The Gospel in Genesis, all the way back in January, we did so with the hope of examining the manner in which the account of creation answers some of life's most fundamental questions. Questions like, who is God? And we talked a lot about that in, that in Genesis chapter one and what it reveals about him. What, who are we and in response to that? And what does it mean that we bear the image of God? What is the relationship between ourselves and God supposed to be like? What is the relationship between other image bearers supposed to be like? And then, what went wrong? Like what, what is the core problem that, that we experience as we walk through our lives? And of course, then what is ultimately being done about it? It's that question last week when we started talking about original sin in Genesis chapter 3, and we, we even took just a moment to kind of lament because we've studied and looked at this picture, this beautiful picture of creation, what we were designed for, all the intent and purpose behind it, and, and yet we can recognize the disconnect in our everyday lives. And, and the fact that it's our experience isn't what God designed it to be. And yet even then, in the midst of sin entering the picture, there was hope. God all along was, had a plan to redeem and restore. When I was a kid, my favorite TV show, uh, like elementary school and, and middle school, was PBS's This Old House. Like, I was a weird kid. Um, <laughs> in fact, I brought, these guys were my heroes, okay? So, like, Norm Abram there on the right, like, that's, like, where I got, like, my love of, like, woodworking and carpentry and house building and, and my love of flannel, like, was all from, like, this old house and I'm, I'm not even joking like i would regular viewing for me on saturday afternoon was was this old house and i think part of what captivated me about this show if you're not familiar with it like they will work with a homeowner who oftentimes 
oftentimes it was a historic home, and they would come in and it would be in really kind of like rundown condition. It maybe had been abandoned sometimes or it was not living up to its design and purpose. And then they come in and they kind of gut everything and bring it back to its original glory. Like it's a transformative story. It's being returned to it from this kind of broken down status where it's no longer operating according to its original design and it's being brought back to beauty and function. I think in, in a very similar way, this really is the story of, of all of Scripture when it's rightly understood. And, and it begins, we discover it here at the very outset in Genesis. Even as God is, is beginning to articulate to humanity the inevitable consequences of disobedience, Right, right alongside the new reality that's brought in by sin, we see God speaking words of hope and grace and the work of restoration. God does not abandon humanity to experience the, this reality of a new condition as a result of sin entering into the narrative. But instead, God will, at great cost to himself, meet humanity in the midst of the brokenness in order to redeem to buy back and to restore i want to go back just a little bit where we started in genesis chapter 3 and i want to i want to relook at some of those verses just kind of as uh, some context here so this is immediately following adam and eve uh, taking the fruit and they become aware of of their condition now and so we pick things up in, in Genesis 3, verse 8. It says, Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden at the time of the evening breeze. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So the Lord God called out to the man and said to him, Where are you? And he said, I heard you in the garden. And I was afraid because I was naked, so I hid. Then he asked, Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? The man replied, the woman you gave to be with me, she gave me some fruit from the tree and I ate. So the Lord God asked the woman, what is this that you've done? And the woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. So again, the condition that we find humanity in at this point in time in the narrative is, is one of shame has now entered the picture, separation, they're hiding from God, and their response to all of it is blame, right? Even Adam's response is to blame God, the woman that you gave me. Here in Genesis 3, we see God asking these questions, and I, I mentioned this last week briefly, but I think this is significant. He has four questions. He says, where are you? Who told you that you were naked? Did you eat from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And what is this that you've done? Again, God's not on a fact-finding mission here. He's, he's allowing Adam and Eve to experience the reality of, of their new state. And I believe these questions are an invitation into confession. He, he wants them to bring it to them. They're made aware now of, of sin's consequences. And now we're in verse 14, and God begins to explain to them the implications of what has happened. 
verse 14. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than any livestock and more than any wild animal. You will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life, and I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. Today I want to look at these couple of verses here and the, consider some of, of what we see both in terms of the implications and the brokenness, but also in terms of the hope that's, that's found in them. Let's begin by looking at, at the curse. At the curse. I, uh, I grew up with, with two brothers. My older brother is, is four years older than me, and he is bigger and stronger and more athletic, like all of those things when I was a kid. And, and oftentimes we were, like boys will do, we were always competing in something. Football, basketball, baseball. There was wiffle ball tournaments in our backyard. It was a nonstop, like, activity thing. And, and sometimes, like, my older brother, who just would beat me at everything, right, he would do this thing where he kind of, like, let me hang around for a little bit. Like, if we were playing basketball or whatever, he would kind of, like, spot me a few points or whatever so that I would be competitive. But then at the end of the day, right, he just would exert his power over me and always ended in like a victory on his behalf. I think, I think sometimes it's tempting when we read this passage, we're considering all that's unfolding here in Genesis 3. As we talked about last week, we see there's this presence of the serpent in the garden. There's this enemy who is actively working to subvert the design and purpose of, of God's goodness, his creation. And he does so primarily because, one, because he hates God and because he hates those who love God. And we can be tempted when we think about this to think of, of these as sort of like equal uh, forces that are battling it out, cosmic good versus cosmic evil. But that's not the case. And we're reminded of that here in Genesis, that there is an ultimate victory and we get a view of this right here in the text. God says to the serpent, you will move on your belly and eat dust all the days of your life. Like our, our immediate reaction to that is to kind of think about the, the physical characteristics of, of snakes, which is, is not the point, right? Like these are ancient Near East cultural descriptions of humiliation and defeat. Like eating dust, like we have our own version of that, like eat my dust, you know? But eating dust was, a, it was like an uh, like inference to the netherworld, like a corpse that is, his mouth is full of dust. And we see this depiction here of, of the future, of the reality of the serpent. And it's one of defeat, and it's one of humiliation. In fact, we get a clear picture of this. We, we briefly went here last week when we were kind of identifying um, who the serpent was. But in Revelation chapter 12, we see this, this power gap as well. This is verse 13. It says, When the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he persecuted the woman. Am I in the right verse? Nope. Go to verse 7. 
Um, you do not want to go to the wrong verse in Revelation. You can end up in, like, all right. Then the war broke out in heaven. Michael and his angels fought against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels also fought, but he could not prevail. And there was no place for them in heaven any longer, so the dragon was thrown out. The ancient serpent, who was called the devil and Satan, the one who deceives the whole world. He was thrown to earth and his angels with him. Then flip over to chapter 20, similarly in verse 1. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding the keys to the abyss and a great chain in his hand, and he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years. And he threw him into the abyss, closed it, and put a seal on it, so that he would no longer deceive the nations until the thousand years were completed. And after that, he must be released for a short time. And I get, and Revelation has all kinds of descriptive language about spiritual forces and ultimate good versus ultimate evil. And we can get lost in some of the detail of this. But I want us to see is that there is, there is a clear power gap. There is a defeat that the serpent experiences that is secured at this point. And so just, I want to offer a couple of reminders as we think about this this morning from the perspective of Genesis. For us, as, as we realize, it's the realization that there is an enemy. There is an enemy whose very purpose is to disrupt and to destroy. We talked about this last week from Ephesians chapter 6. He wants to disrupt God's design in the garden, the relational harmony that we're designed to experience of dwelling with God and to create in us that sense of separation and shame that we see in, in Genesis 3. Secondly, his method, his, his most vicious tactic and weapon is lies. In the Gospel of, of John, Jesus is confronting some Pharisees and he's he basically says you're doing the bidding of your father, the devil, which that's never good, right? And this is in, in uh, chapter 8, verse 44. It says, he, referring to the devil, was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in truth because there is no truth in him. And when he tells a lie, he speaks from his own nature because he is a liar and the father of lies. So for us, that, that realization, that awareness for us as as followers of Jesus who have an enemy that's actively seeking to disrupt and destroy, right? Truth becomes paramount. This is, again, Jesus in, in John chapter 8, that you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Our commitment to knowing and understanding God's word, to being grounded in that becomes absolutely vital. But thirdly is the reminder that he loses there is an outcome that is set. This is not a battle of equals. God, God is not trying to uh, see if he can one-up or overpower the serpent. He proclaims the consequences. He speaks it with the power of his word. And he says it's going to be humility, humiliation, and ultimate defeat as a result of this. That's a promise that, that you and I need to hold on to. But this curse then reveals itself or results in, in a conflict. Look again back in Genesis 3, in the beginning of, of verse 15 here. It says, I will put hostility between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. 
Notice that, that juxtaposition of where there had been in Genesis 1 and 2, the prevailing condition was one of harmony. Now there is one of hostility. Uh, Lainey and I were talking a, a couple weeks ago that um, her, at her school at Calvin, there was a, a docuseries that's being filmed as a part of a, a series on rivalries. And Calvin's a Christian school, and then just a few miles south, my older daughter attends Hope, and these, these two schools are rivals. And so this guy, this docuseries includes like these rivals of like Ohio State, Michigan, and all these major rivalries. And they actually filmed as a part of this series at, at Calvin. And I was thinking about the implications of, of rivalries and what is it that drives us in it, right? What is it that makes fans so passionate? And by the way, like if you think we're a little nutty or over the top in the U.S. Like, if you want to see some rivalries, check out, like, English soccer. Like, they get, they get worked up. They get real worked up. And it gets, anyways. Um, right, the, the, what drives that passion is this, this hope of vastly different outcomes. Right, there's this loyalty, this ownership, this, this community that you're a part of. What's driving it? See, the breaking point here in Genesis 3.15, this, this trajectory, this, this conflict, this becomes a path or a, a trajectory that we can chase throughout the rest of Scripture. It's part of almost the meta-narrative of, of the whole of Scripture. The hostility of the conflict is described here in these verses, gets played out almost immediately. So the question then becomes, well, who are these offsprings? What is this referring to? We see that in, in the very next chapter. You're familiar with the story of, of Cain and Abel. Abel is seeking to live in right relationship with his creator, with God. And as a result, when he brings offerings to God, he brings his very best. Cain, his brother, on the other hand, is, is operating out of his own self-interest. And so when he brings his offering to God, he brings what is secondary or the leftovers. And so he's deciding right for himself what is good and what is evil. And God accepts Abel's offering, but he refuses Cain. So in Genesis chapter 4, picking it up uh, halfway through verse 4, it says, The Lord had, regarded for Abel, uh, had regard for Abel and his offering, but did not have regard for Cain and his offering. Cain was furious, and he looked despondent. Then the Lord said to Cain, why are you furious? And why do you look despondent? If, if you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you, do what, if, if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. Its desire is for you, but you must rule over it. Then Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. And while they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. So almost instantly, within a single generation, right? this, this trajectory has led to sibling rivalry and, and then murder. In the end of Genesis 4 and Genesis chapter 5, the same path gets highlighted in the, the line of Cain, 
who is illustrated in this, this guy named Lamech, who is just, uh, he's a real jerk. And his, he essentially writes a poem bragging about how he murdered somebody, and he operates in his own sense of justice, in his own sense of, of self-interest. And anybody that comes after him, if there was going to be implications for coming after Cain, it would be multiple times if you came after him. But then it talks about the line of Seth. And it says, those who walked in the line of Seth, they were a people who would call on the name of the Lord. There's two, two divergent pathways. From the line of Seth would come Noah, who lived in right relationship to God, through which God would ultimately provide for humanity's salvation following the flood. Later in the Old Testament, we, we see this same thing, and it's talked about as the kingdom of, of Israel, the people living in covenant relationship with God and the kingdom of Babylon. In fact, Babylon becomes like a metaphor used throughout scripture to describe the kingdom when we're operating outside of God as our ultimate authority. In the New Testament, it gets depicted as the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world. And Jesus says in John chapter 12 that, that the kingdom of this world is operating under the authority of the serpent. Paul describes it in our own lives personally as living according to the flesh or living according to the spirit in Galatians chapter 5. Now I know that's, that's a lot and, and I get that, but I want us to grasp what is unfolding here in Genesis 3. There's these kingdoms in conflict, in conflict representing the offspring of the woman, and we'll talk more about that in a moment, and the offspring of the serpent. And these, these offsprings, these divergent paths, they have competing authorities with competing agendas, competing priorities, and ultimately very different destinations. And in the garden, in the midst of this conflict, then there is a promise. Right? The serpent, his goal, his objective is to separate humanity from God's designed intent. His goal was to put hostility between where God resided and where humanity was at. But did you see what God does here? He flips that narrative. He said, I'm going to put hostility between the woman and you, between her offspring and your offspring. The very thing that, God, that Satan ought, uh, sought to accomplish, God flips. And the means by which he does this then is, is our third point here, and that's the cross. See, here in Genesis chapter 3, we, we are pointed to the cross. Look again at verse 15, the very end of that. In the text, God says to the serpent, He will strike your head and you will strike his heel. And at this moment in the narrative, in addition to the, the mourning and the grief that we feel in this brokenness and the the ushering in of sin and separation, right? It can also feel to us a bit hopeless. But God speaks hope into this hopelessness. This phrase here in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, it's sometimes referred to as the Proto-Evangelion or the first gospel. From, from the offspring of the woman, evil will ultimately be defeated. But it's going to come at a cost. 
Right alongside the consequence of, of man's rebellion is the first indication of God's desire to, to provide salvation. There's an artist um, by the name of Scott Erickson, and, and he did this, um, this painting, and it's, it's called Eve and Mary. Um, and it's kind of a, uh, actually a, his own version of another famous painting that maybe some of you have seen. You can put that second one up there. This is the original, and this was done by Sister Grace Remington. It's called Mary Consoles Eve, and she's, it's her depiction of what Genesis 3.15 is promising here. That it would be through the seed of the woman that God is ultimately going to provide for us a Savior, a Son, so right alongside from, from the very beginning, right, we are directed to the cross, that God's provision would be his own son, that Jesus, in taking on flesh and bearing the penalty of sin on the cross, ultimately would be the one who defeats the power that, that sin and shame and separation have in our lives. That we suffered in the garden. The Apostle Paul, he, he talks about this and this restorative work of the cross in, in the letter to the Colossians. This is in uh, Colossians chapter 1, which, by the way, this is where we're going in after Easter. We're going to do a study of the letter of Colossians, and this is what Paul writes in verse 13. This is the promise of Genesis 3, 15. It says, he has rescued us from dominion of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the son he loves. In him we have redemption and the forgiveness of sins. And then flip over to chapter 2, verse 13. It says, and, we, and when you were dead in trespasses and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, that's living outside of covenant relationship with God, he made you alive in him and forgave us all of our trespasses. He erased the certificate of debt with its obligations that was against us and opposed to us, and he's taken it away by nailing it to the cross. He's going to crush your head. You're going to strike his heel, but he's going to crush your head. See, and all the way back in the beginning, God was promising us a Savior. On the cross, the one who was both fully God and fully human would, would be the one who endured the cross and despised its shame. The gospel was there from the beginning. It was his plan of, of redemption and restoration. God acting on behalf of us to, to secure for us victory over sin. I would imagine that very few of us would deny that we live in a, a, in a broken world. And I would I would venture to guess that most of us recognize that that same brokenness exists in our own hearts, inside of each and every one of us. And we can both lament the implications of, of Genesis chapter 3, and at the same time recognize that God in his infinite grace, his compassion and his purpose, would not allow the effects of sin to have the last word in our lives. From the very beginning, his plan was to restore us back into relationship with us. The hope of the gospel, present all the way there in Genesis chapter 3. In some ways, the, the very first 
one to hear the gospel preached was the serpent in the garden. And it's there. It's there for you. This is what Jesus has done for you. Available in him. When we talk about what it means to put our faith in Jesus, and, and maybe you're here and, and you've been a part of this series or you've been wrestling with some of those foundational questions, I just want you to know this morning that that, that promise in Genesis 3, that's for you. We talk about the gospel and, and placing our faith in Jesus, and I know sometimes like the language of this can get confusing or disorienting. Essentially what we mean is that we are relying on Jesus, we're placing our faith in him, that what he accomplished on the cross is on our behalf. That as uh, Rachel Gilson said a, a few weeks ago, we're betting our life on the resurrection. That's available to you. That's the promise of Genesis chapter 3. When we, when we come to him and we recognize our need for forgiveness, and we say, I am, I'm handing it over to you. He is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness, to restore us back into right relationship with him. And that's available in what Jesus has done on our behalf. Would you pray with me? Father, we do just thank you again for this morning. We thank you for this study of, of Genesis that we've been in and working through this text and recognizing that even in the, the pain of all that had been lost, Lord, that you would not abandon us, that you were faithful, and that you made a plan, um, a plan that would come at great cost, wherein you would offer up your very own son to be for us, our, our sacrificial lamb. And Lord, so we're completely relying on you. Lord, we're completely relying on your grace and on your mercy. So we run to the promise. Recognizing therein is redemption and restoration. And it's in your name we pray. Amen. Amen. We hold on to the promise. Right? The very promise made from, from creation's beginning. Um, that God would make a way. And he would do so through his son, Jesus Christ. If we can pray with you this morning, or if you've got questions about what I was talking about, the gospel and the implications of that, or even what does it mean to surrender our lives to Christ, I'd love to chat with you about that. Um, or if there's a way that we can pray alongside of you, we're happy to do that. If you came prepared to give this morning, our generosity boxes are, are by the two side doors. Um, we're so grateful for all the ways that you share in this work with us, you participate with us. Um, we're grateful you're a part of this community. Now receive this morning's benediction. Go now in the name of Jesus Christ, the promise given all the way back in the garden that you would overcome evil and restore us and redeem us into right relationship with you. And it's in your name we pray, amen.